0: Hi, everyone. This is Alex Epstein, host of Power Hour. And this week we have another best of Power Hour. This week's topic is our energy resources. And at a time when we hear constantly about sustainability, the implication of which is that our modern capitalist industrial civilization is somehow unsustainable, it's very important to understand the nature of Resources. And on this episode, Robert Bradley Jr., who's been a great friend and mentor of mine in energy, explains the different theories on resources and why, at least as I would put it, resources are something that we create from nature, not something that we take from nature. Also, related to this, uh, r- related to Rob at least, he just published a very nice article uh, about me and about climate catastrophism in his great blog, Master Resource, which you can check out at masterresource.org. So we will link to that in our newsletter, but you can also check it out just by going to masterresource.org. And I think it's today, which I'm recording this on February 25th. So enjoy this episode with Rob on our energy resources, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Also, if you are not on my mailing list and want to be, sign up at AlexEpsteinList dot that's alexepsteinlist dot com. Thanks. Power hour. Coal.
1: Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites. no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Power Hour. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. And I should say, welcome to Power Hour Weekly, since we are now... A weekly show, thanks to the generosity of all of you after our little campaign. Last month, we have all new equipment. We're actually going to start doing video next week. Uh, So there may be a few technical snags. I hope hope I've ironed out everything in advance. Uh, But in any case, you're going to be getting new energy knowledge weekly now, uh, starting next week. I hope, um, I'm almost certain, actually, you'll be seeing us on video, so we'll have the full episode and excerpts on YouTube, which should help promote the show a lot. And we will have um, author Pierre Derrochet, who's been on this show before, talking about his new book, The Locavore's Dilemma, The Locavore's Dilemma, and uh, I'm reading it right now. It's absolutely unbelievable in terms of what you can learn about the history of agriculture, and how dangerous, actually, the the seemingly benign local agriculture movement is. But that is not what we're talking about today. Today, we are talking about one of the most important aspects of energy, which is the issue of resources. One of the most common claims, or one of the most common criticisms you'll hear about a free market in energy, which is something that I, I support, the show in general supports, uh, is that... We are, with the sources of energy we use now, the leading sources such as coal, oil, natural gas, we're inevitably going to run out. Um, The most common version of this that you'll probably hear is called peak oil. It's most most often propagated with regard to oil because oil is so essential to the world economy, and yet people say, well, there's a finite amount of it, so isn't it going to run out, and isn't that... Going to be a disaster now we've talked about this on the show before, um, but there's one aspect that we haven't talked about I think nearly enough and that's what today's show is about and that's what today's guest is a particular expert on and that is a historical perspective on this issue when we're when this is announced in the news I saw the other day in the New York Times there was an article I think it was called let's be less productive and the uh, the author of the article is the author of a book about how you know, what do we do since we're on, and in fact, what do we do since we live on a finite planet? How do we, you know, we don't have enough resources. And what most people don't realize is that this is a claim that goes a long, long way back, and that there's been a lot of thinking about this issue on both sides, and that there's been a lot of testing of this issue in reality. So our guest today, um, Dr. Robert Bradley Jr., um, Um, in his work, and particularly in his book, Capitalism at Work, which was published a couple years ago, gives a really uh, brilliant history of the thought on energy resources. So what Dr. Bradley is going to do is he's going to take us through a tour of the history of the theories about resources, and then what actually happened in practice. And then knowing that history, we're a lot better prepared to have an informed view Um, of the issue. So Dr. Bradley is the founder and CEO of the Institute for Energy Research, and on a more personal note, um, more than anyone in the world of energy, he has helped me in in my career. He's helped the show actually dramatically. He's helped um, us introduce us to a number of the guests, so uh, I'll talk more about that later, but for now, Rob, welcome to Power Hour.
2: Good to be with you, Alex.
1: All right, so in in Capitalism at Work, you have um, some really interesting chapters on resources. Uh, Can you tell us how far back this idea that we're running out of resources goes?
2: Yes, well, the subtitle of the book is Business, Government, and Energy. And the second half of the book uh, uh, is a history of thought, of the idea of minerals, and in particular, energy minerals being different from the uh, general uh, basket of goods and services. And um, uh, Adam Smith, for example, in The Wealth of Nations, to my knowledge, uh, does not differentiate between uh, minerals, uh, fixed resources in the earth, and uh, producible uh, goods and services. Um, uh, But I think, uh, uh, or at least the first treatise on energy that looked at uh, minerals differently was uh, William Stanley Jevons' The Coal Question, which was published uh, back in 1865. And Jevons' book is sort of the wealth of nations for uh, energy and mineral uh, economics. It was the first book to really... Uh, think in terms of uh, so-called fixed supply. And as far as the context for Jevons, um, at the time, his home country, uh, uh, England, was producing uh, most of the coal that was consumed in the world uh, in the 1960s. Um, uh, and um, uh, England was um, producing coal for all its own energy needs, and it was exporting about half of the coal that was uh, used uh, by the rest of the world. And so uh, uh, Jevons noted that there was an industrial boom going on uh, with uh, uh, locomotion, Uh, uh, fueled by coal and a lot of the the machinery of the Industrial Revolution being uh, uh, powered by coal. And he was asking the question, well, what's the future? And he was very concerned that uh, England uh, was going to lose its national prominence because uh, it was uh, going to uh, not so much run out of coal, but it would just become more high cost to mine coal. At the time, the demand for coal was very high in the country, and they were digging deeper and deeper to find coal. So Jevons concluded that England was uh, going to uh, run out of uh, low-cost coal, and that the coal industry was going to move to other regions of the world with more abundant supplies, such as the United States. And therefore, um, uh, uh, young people in England would be uh, uh, moving to other countries of the world, such as the U.S., and England would be in perilous uh, economic times. Uh, So that was the context in which he wrote.
1: Um, So one interesting thing, I think, about the evolution of this thought, as you describe in the book, is that when you start uh, with Jevons, Jevons is a really interesting figure. He's one of the the founders of um, modern economics, and so he kn- he knows a lot about economics. He doesn't he doesn't say stuff like "Yeah, we're going to run out." As you said, he says we're going to it just, the the price will go up, so it'll relatively speaking, it'll become scarce compared uh, to other things. One thing that I I notice about Jevons, although I think history I'm certain history proves him to be wrong, and he can be theoretically refuted is that he really valued the resource that he was concerned about. Today, often you'll hear this weird coupling of people saying, oil is evil, we shouldn't use it, and oh, by the way, we're running out of it. But as, of course, if we were running out of it, they should be really happy about that. That should be a plus uh, in their mind. So that's a little suspicious. Whereas with Jevons, he has all of these amazing statements about how important coal was. Um Tell us a little bit about his his positive view of coal and then his view of coal relative to, let's say, wind power, which was also an issue at that time.
2: Right. Um, Yes. Uh, um, uh, uh, At the time, coal was really energy, uh, modern energy, Uh, and coal displaced uh, the primary energies of before, which were all renewable. Uh, They were using wind in different applications. Uh, Falling water was a a major source of uh, of energy, Uh, and uh, particularly burning uh, wood and plants, uh, what we would call today primitive biomass, was a major energy source. So before uh, coal came along, uh, Jevons recognized that it was renewables that uh, were the primary energies, and as a matter of fact, uh, renewable energy uh, had a 100% market share uh, prior to the rise of of coal energy, um, which is interesting because that corresponded to the poverty era of mankind, so the idea that somehow renewable energy is the future and uh, that uh, renewables can power an industrial age, uh, has it exactly backwards. So um, what Jevons did in the coal question is he carefully went over all the earlier energies, which uh, were renewable, each was renewable, and he explained why they were not suited for the modern era. Uh, uh, For example, uh, fall in water, uh, what today we would call hydropower. Uh, If there's a drought and you don't have uh, uh, water from higher elevations going to lower elevations to uh, create uh, energy, uh, then you're out of luck. Uh, With wind power, uh, the wind sometimes blows, sometimes it doesn't, and uh, there's no batteries uh, at the time, and still today, batteries are uh, highly uneconomic, uh, then you have your uh, energy source going on and off in an unpredictable way, which is uh, uh, ill-suited for uh, modern uh, energy uses. Um, uh, and uh, in biomass, uh, primitive biomass, uh, Jevon said to replace coal, uh, you would have to to have huge land masses uh, growing plants and trees, and really more land mass in there than uh, could possibly be dedicated to this. So, uh, Jebbins saw coal as the beginning of a new energy era. He uh, emphasized how uh, 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 coal uh, was vastly superior to anything that had come uh, before. Uh, and in so doing, he identified energy as what uh, Julian Simon today would call the master resource.
1: All right. On that note of the the difference between you, you said something to the effect of coal was energy at the time, and this this topic of of uh, hydrocarbons versus uh, renewables. I, I wrote an article recently on your blog, Master Resource, called "Progressive Energy versus Renewable Energy," and um, I can put up a link to that later. I won't. I won't recapitulate the whole thing, but one aspect of it was that what we think of energy today means cheap, plentiful, reliable energy, and by that standard, so-called uh, renewables aren't really energy. And that's what that's what I take it Jevons was pointing to. Um, on if you search jevons j e v o n s on um on masterresource dot org or on industrialprogress.net, dot net you'll find a lot of really interesting quotes from him about just the extent to which having a cheap plentiful reliable source had improved human life um, versus the intermittent um and dilute sources uh that are often uh called renewables so I think what he points to is that the essence of what we of what energy is is not really about how long does the fuel source last or the potential source last does it last five billion years or might it be 500 years it's does it provide this this uh caliber uh, of energy but that's a whole topic in and of itself Uh, i would ask for a second what is the relationship between jevons and malthus because when we talk about resources running out thomas malthus is often the first name that comes to mind
2: yeah that's a good question um uh, Malthus was uh, looking mainly at uh, agriculture. And out um, of Malthus and his book, A Principle uh, on Population, which came out uh, in the uh, late 17th, early uh, 18th century, um, uh, he saw that human population was increasing faster than a- uh, the agricultural uh, foodstuffs necessarily to support the uh, increasing population. Therefore, the difference would be misery uh, or vice, uh, people dying of disease, uh, of wars, um, and living at subsistence, uh, uh, which is a very gloomy view, and that, out of that comes the Malthusian view. Well, Jevons sort of was working in the Malthus tradition in the sense that he was looking at minerals now as the key uh, strategic and scarce, relatively scarce factor. Uh, And Jevons uh, uh, was a Malthusian in in the sense that uh, he warned uh, and turned out to be way too pessimistic regarding coal in his home country. Uh, Jevons was not saying we were running out of coal worldwide what he was saying was that uh, his own country's prosperity was on the wane because uh, it was running out of low cost or competitive uh, coal so uh, in one sense uh, Jevons was a Maltesean but in another sense uh, he he really didn't address the question of globally uh, running out of uh, coal
1: and well, wait, wait, Rob. Let me let me jump in there. But it, it seems I don't see how it could be anything else. That is, because it, it seems like his arguments are. It's more than just oh, England doesn't happen to have that much coal because, of course, it was the coal leader in the world for a while. It seems like what he's saying about there's only a fixed amount at a certain point. We're going to deplete it that, and that's going to be that's going to lower our standard of living when that happens. That seems like it would ev- inevitably have to happen to America, even if he's not making a specific forecast about America?
2: I think I think that can be implied. Uh, Jevons, uh, his book came out in 1865, and uh, in the United States, uh, we had the beginning of the commercial oil industry with the uh, first commercial oil well in Titusville, Pennsylvania. That was uh, 1859. So Uh, Jevons was a little behind in realizing that a whole other carbon-based energy resource, petroleum, was uh, arising to join coal, Uh, and natural gas uh, was virtually unknown at the time um, because gas uh, was being made from coal. So uh so uh yeah, Jevons uh uh sort of he, he he yes, he didn't uh forecast the uh the end of cheap coal for the world, uh but he was too pessimistic uh toward uh his home country's coal supply, which turned out to be a lot more abundant and um uh, uh, lower costs than he thought. But he really didn't uh Foresee or recognize that uh, coal was something was part of something much bigger, and that is a carbon-based energy era uh, where there's coal, there's uh, petroleum, and there's natural gas.
1: Just a quick note on natural gas: pretty early on, they did discover natural gas. Right? It was just it was a hazard. It was something that was blowing up
2: yeah it Oil was around mix. and and uh there were ancient uses uh of natural gas you know every now and then it would be springing up at the surface and uh they were uh different uh localities and people were using it in innovative ways but as far as commercial uh wells and a pipeline system uh, that was much slower to come that would really come after Uh, coal uh, began the carbon-based energy era.
1: Right. One of the reasons that that it's helpful to to bring up petroleum and then also uh, natural gas being uh, effectively unusable, even though, as we know now, there's a ton of it, is it it starts to point to there's something wrong with historically the way people think of, of, quote, natural resources, because these things like oil and natural gas and even coal aren't naturally a resource, people are continually uh, because you don't automatically find them, and you don't know automatically know how to use them. And what we see is people are finding these new things, and then they're finding uses for things that were previously not resources. Who's the first thinker to really start to understand this about the nature of resources—that resources are, in a very real way, a creation of human beings?
2: Well, that that's a very good point and a subtle and It's one that some of your own writings has uh, emphasized and reminded a lot of uh, people about that so-called natural resources uh, really aren't natural in the sense that they're just free and we just uh, pluck them and use them, but they're more manufactured uh, resources where we have to do a lot of work uh, to turn them into something that we can use. Um I think a a very key uh, person in the history of mineral thought uh, is uh, Eric Zimmerman, who, beginning in the 1930s, wrote extensively, and he has a treatise called World Resources and Industries, which uh, uh, should be on uh, uh, all of our bookshelves who are interested in, uh, in energy economics, mineral economics. And Zimmerman was an institutionalist uh, uh, from the institutionalist School of Economics, uh, which uh, is a very useful way of, uh, of looking at real-world economics. And uh, Zimmerman understood the importance of energy, that energy was a master resource, even though he didn't use a term. And he was very good on the idea that resources really come from the mind, not so much Uh, the ground, that resources are not resources become, that only in a human sense and in a business, uh, technological, economic sense do resources uh, have meaning. And Zimmerman uh, saw uh, unused resources or what would later become resources as just stuff in the earth or mass in the earth. And it was human ingenuity that turned uh, the stuff, the neutral stuff of the earth, uh, into uh, usable resources. And in this sense, uh, Eric Zimmerman uh, foreshadowed the later thinking of uh, Julian Simon, who a lot more people are familiar with.
1: Yeah, that's that's such a brilliant uh, point about how just this, this hu- realizing that something is a resource um, – To someone, it's a relational term. I mean, and it requires it requires that it's as he points out. It's it just it it isn't just there. It's not just there as a resource. You have to do something, and that includes you need to understand it and and recognize it as a resource to to human beings for uh, a certain purpose. And I, I like the designation of just of stuff because we have to realize that throughout human history most of what we call resources, the things that are both producing our energy and just physically constituting the world around us, were lying around just doing uh, absolutely nothing. So is, is he really, would you call him the innovator on those, at least introducing those points? Because I don't know anyone who comes before, but I don't know the history nearly as well as you do. Well, his
2: uh, 1933 book, which he um uh, revised in 1951 I believe uh, world resources and industry It's is certainly a, a, a seminal book and I think it's uh, I, I would say it's the first treatise since Jevons a coal question uh, and uh, Zimmerman uh, re- he really got it and he called his theory the functional theory which really means uh, uh, real world Um and uh, at the same time, Zimmerman was uh, was writing on resources, uh, or exa- exactly two years before Zimmerman's treatise came out in 1933, uh, a technical economist named Harold Hotelling wrote a piece that uh, uh, was and still is the most influential essay in the history of mineral economics. Uh, called the economics of exhaustible resources, which was published in the Journal of Political Economy in in, in nineteen thirty one, and uh, Hotelling had a very different view. Uh, his uh, key assumption was uh, fixity, where there was known uh, fixed supply. In other words, it's a, it's a perfect knowledge scenario, and um, uh, what Hotelling was really thinking about was oil, uh, and if you read the the beginning of this seminal article in the end, you see that Hotelling is very focused on oil, and he's applying it to the real world. And Hotelling basically uh, comes to the conclusion, with perfect knowledge, uh, with his fixity assumption, is that as uh, more of the mineral is uh, Produced and consumed that the cost of finding it must go up, and the selling price must go up and there's a there's a price premium in other words involved with fixity uh the mineral resource that doesn't exist with other goods and services that are reproducible in in human time frames so uh uh out of herald Hotelling comes the fixity, depletion, exhaustion view of uh, a special uh, uh, cost and price premium, what uh, hoteling uh, or what became known in the literature as uh, user costs. So um, now what's important about hoteling is that this could apply to uh, uh, water in a canteen in the desert, you know, in other words, it's not so much uh, any mineral, it's just like any fixed supply. And telling, uh, uh is what he basically did was to present a mathematical exercise, which is irrefutable, but by assuming fixity and assuming perfect knowledge, he really assumed away the real world. And that's why Eric Zimmerman uh, dismissed... Hotelling's uh, analysis of 1931 article as just a jumble of numbers. So here we go <laughs> with economists in the real world versus economists in their never, never land of uh, perfect knowledge.
1: So I want to go back to looking at um, Hotelling some of those assumptions in a minute, because that, I mean, that's, you could almost, what you said could almost just be reading off most of what we hear today uh, about Resources—it's certainly a, a prevailing view. But let's let's step aside for a second, or step back for a second, and look at evidence. How did these? If we start with Jevons and then go forward, what did the what was the evidence um, that was borne out about the production of resources? How did coal production fare? How did oil production fare uh, pre and post Hotelling?
2: Well, the, the story uh, from the very beginning has been uh, more and more supply. It's almost like the more we find and use, the more we discover uh, to be uh, mined and used. Uh, and what's going on here is that uh, there's the ultimate resource, uh, a term used by Julian Simon, and that's human ingenuity. And human ingenuity is not a depleting resource; it's an expanding resource. Uh, you know, every advance we have in human knowledge uh, increases the possibilities for future uh, uh, breakthroughs in knowledge and technology. Uh, and uh, the other thing that's going on, and this brings in the institutional side, that was so important to Zimmerman, in which is very important to uh, uh, the free market view of the world, is that under capitalism, where you have expanding savings and investment or capital and expanding machinery, that we become more productive in finding so-called fixed or uh, non-depletable resources. So what's important here is not so much Minerals uh, leading to uh, you know peak oil or peak gas, which which really important here is incentives and private property rights, and the threat uh, to expanding uh, cheapening minerals is is really uh, what I call uh, peak government, (laughs) Um, and and this leads to uh, uh, the point that. Sometimes in history where we have a lot of government intervention uh, uh uh mineral resources go up in price and it fools people into thinking that Harold Hotelling's user cost is suddenly operative but the but the problem there is is not uh free markets and human ingenuity the natural state of things but it's artificial government intervention and the major exhibit of that is the 1970s in the United States, uh, when we had uh, oil shortages and natural gas shortages due to uh, price and allocation regulation.
1: Um. Yeah. Well, that's that's so many points. I don't even know where to to go next. But yeah. That. Um. Sticking on the on the issue of, uh, Hotelling's point about assuming quote unquote perfect knowledge. It's always going to to cost more. To produce something that that would apply to anything, right? Because the way any, any resource would work, assuming you have the same amount of knowledge, is that the next that the first thing you try to like the first iron ore you mine is going to be the easiest, you're going to choose the cheapest and easiest, and then you're going to choose the next cheapest and next easiest, and the next, next, and next, and next. And thus, you yeah. would assume, well, we've been getting iron for a couple thousand years so we must have and even back then some people were talking about we're running out of iron so now it must be super expensive to get iron yet so why are all of our steel things uh so cheap and of course what, what's happening as you said is the, the the technology is really the and the human mind is the unrecognized resource here because you mentioned the more resources. The more resources we use, the more we have. And that's no accident because in using them and producing them, we're getting all of this new knowledge. And that knowledge is ultimately what differentiates us uh, from everyone else. And and to talk about perfect knowledge is just philosophically such a corruption and it it really orients people in the wrong direction because the direction we should be oriented in is we've got this massive ball of raw materials, most of which we probably don't know one one hundredth the potential of how to use. And the whole task is to grow knowledge, but there's no, there's no sort of platonic world of perfect knowledge that we're somehow close to that says, yeah, you can only do this with oil, you can only do this with coal, you can only do this with gas, you can only mine them this way. Um, and fortunately, uh, but, but at the same time, it becomes a self-fulfilling fallacy because the people who say resources are hopeless, are the same ones who control people in exercising their ingenuity to create resources.
2: Right. Uh, there's a couple of uh, very important points in what you uh, just said. Uh, one is that uh, Hotelling's analysis not only applies to minerals, uh, which uh, you know, uh, fall into his uh, fixity uh, 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 paradigm, But it also can apply to non-minerals, reproducible goods and services, where there's a fixed supply uh, because of locational um, uh, specifics, you know, water in the desert. Um, um, So Hotelling's analysis, you know, really doesn't apply to, uh, well, he used the term exhaustible resources, but, uh, you know, if we define resources as being anything, It can apply to minerals or non-minerals, and then there was a something else that your analysis uh, uh, triggered in my mind, and it'll it'll come back to me uh, in a second.
1: All right, no problem. The thing about the thing about the exhaustible, I think it's constantly blending the raw material with the resource which as Julian Simon likes to say and i this i find this formulation very helpful is the service that we get from the raw material so uh, this idea of renewable it, what it's implying is that nature somehow is just re- replenishing an unlimited amount of some service and that is true of basically zero things. I mean, it's okay, it's true of oxygen. It's true of certain basic prerequisites, but it's certainly not true of clean water. It's not true of any form of energy. Of course, it gives us the sun, but in a modern sense, that's not much of a resource because that can't, right now, it doesn't give us cheap, plentiful, reliable energy. So when they talk about it's replenishing, well, it's replenishing a non-economic resource. So how valuable uh, is that? And at the same time, the things that are so-called non-renewable Like oil, well, if um, Michael Lynch, um, who's been on the show and who writes for Master Resource, he pointed out once in a really brilliant comment um, on one of his blogs that oil, oil, which is based on decayed plant animal matter, that replenishes at a certain rate. We just happen to use a lot more than that rate. But let's say we use 2 million barrels a year. Well, we'd kill our standard of living, but oil would be a renewable resource. The whole conceptualization is an anti-economic conceptualization. The way to think about it is: at any given time, what is the best, cheapest way of doing something? Right. And with human ingenuity, you're always figuring out better, better right. ways. And it's right. it's progressive. And,
2: and this is because uh, even some mainstream economists, one of them being Milton Friedman, uh, have they came to the conclusion that petroleum is not inexhaustible. Or depleting resource. Uh, and certainly, business firms and entrepreneurs, they're constantly replenishing uh, supply. Um, and so, the, really, the right in economic and business terms, it's a fallacy. Uh, it, it can lead to very bad results to think that minerals are somehow different from all the other goods and services. Uh, um, entrepreneurs in oil, gas, and coal, some of them had thought, oh gosh, the price of my commodity is going to be going up in the future because of fixity and depletion, and therefore I'm going to make decisions based on that uh, increasing price assumption, and they've gotten into trouble. And the same thing is true with uh, policymakers, Uh, politicians, bureaucrats, that form uh, economic policy based on the increasing scarcity of minerals uh... that has turned into very bad policy too so i think the conclusion is is that we need to look at the mineral resource industries as manufacturing uh... uh... industries and there's a quotation from the nineteen eighties by uh... tom DeGregory, gregory a economist at the university of houston who was a student of Eric Zimmerman, and I think it's worth uh, uh, recalling uh, or uh, quoting. Uh, And this comes from an article entitled Resources Are Not, They Become an Institutional Theory uh, that was published in the Journal of Economic Issues. And DeGregory said, quote, if resources are not fixed but created, then the nature of the scarcity problem changes dramatically for the technological means involved in the use of resources determines their creation and therefore the extent of their scarcity. The nature of the scarcity is not outside the process that is natural, but a condition of it. And this gets very much to the point, Alex, that you uh, independently uh, uh, discovered and wrote about, and that is that natural resources aren't really uh, natural
1: yeah, I don't. Um, I wouldn't say I discovered that. I mean, I, I thought a lot about it. Maybe I've said some interesting, original things about well, it.
2: Well, you know what? I think you independently uh, discovered it. It you know it wasn't like you were the first person, but uh, from your philosophical perspective uh, and your uh, your knowledge and your your intuition uh, uh, of nature versus man, you came to this conclusion, and I thought it was very interesting that you independently came to that.
1: Uh, Yeah, and I I, I found it helpful in my own thinking to think of natural resources as not naturally a resource. Um, But speaking of philosophy, it's worth bringing up Ayn Rand here since I think she's, we'll talk about Julian Simon in a minute, Um, but I think Ayn Rand is really underrated And just about everything, but certainly on this point, if you read Atlas Shrugged, I mean, I know you have and and talked about it, but if people read Atlas Shrugged with the resources question in mind, you'll see that there are many scenes and discussions in the book that directly address uh, this issue, including just one with oil, um, where Ellis Wyatt, the oil tycoon, is talking about how he is going to figure out how to tap, interestingly enough, shale oil, which is, of course, a big
0: Issue now,
1: um, but the whole driving thing behind it, and the whole driving thing behind the book, is the power of the human mind. And what right. what Wyatt does is he takes this mountain that's completely unusable to anyone and makes it into a gusher of oil. And then when he withdraws the mind from it, he doesn't tell people he does it. It then he lights it on fire, and it but it just becomes a torch. But even if he hadn't lit it on fire, it would just become uh, a useless mountain. And that that points to the to the point that the world is just a ball of raw materials that follow certain scientific laws that are just waiting for human beings to figure out uh, how to render valuable. And in the essay, What is Capitalism? Ayn Rand, I don't have a direct quote, but it's something very close to, she talks about natural resources and she says, those natural resources are just so much raw materials without the aid of man. So I think she's a really important figure for those in resource economics or resource philosophy more broadly to read.
2: Yeah, uh, Atlas Shrugged, uh, published in 1957, is fascinating on a lot of different levels. And I read the book Cover to Cover uh, uh, some years ago uh, just focused on energy. Uh, How does she understand and treat Uh, energy uh, uh, in the book and it's just fascinating because she captures the major themes of Eric Zimmerman and Julian Simon uh, the importance of energy, energy the master resource uh, being one of them and also uh, what you just talked about how uh, uh, energy is not so much a natural resource but a man-made one that both on the supply and the demand side uh, energy, uh, its, its usefulness is all about man and doesn't uh, exist independent of man. And the way that she uses light as a metaphor, energy as a metaphor, uh, um, uh, where, um, oh gosh, I wish I had the quotations in front of me, but we could have a separate segment on uh, the energy of Atlas Shrugged uh, which is uh something that I've given talks on before and I need to uh put together in a journal article.
1: Yeah, it's just to, to come up with a couple of references since as listeners might imagine this is a subject I like. Uh I mean if you if you look at the beginning of the book, what what is the focus? The whole focus pow- is motive power, you know, what powers the world. And then there there are two senses in which that's used in the book. The ultimate sense is that the human mind is the motive power of the world, and that's ultimately in the book. Close your ears if I'm giving anything away, but you know that's what John Galt is is withdrawing from the world, and that's what causes the world uh, to go downhill. But but the other sense, in the um, more immediate sense, is the focus on energy because Mo- energy is motive power, the power to move things around. Productively to benefit human life, and thus, it's no accident that there's a focus on you know the energy needed to make steel, um, you know the energy needed to power a railroad. That a huge number of the disasters in the book occur um, because of because of the exit of Ellis Wyatt and oil production from the scene. That ultimately Galt's goal in the book, I mean that that the sign that the civilization that the um, what um, what you'd call it, like the looter state or the the rule by force? The sign that that's collapsed is that the lights go out. And to, there's a real recognition. I didn't realize it before I got into energy so much, but there's just such a deep appreciation of the role of right. energy in human life, and then the role of the mind in energy. And that's those are the two fixtures right. of, and, of this show. the
2: show. Politi- the political economy of energy that comes into play. Um, Rand. Um, uh, in her novel, she sketches out the scenarios of price controls leading to physical shortages where you have uh blackouts and you have uh motive power that's suddenly gone, and uh the you know the trucks and cars and trains stop uh, um, it is very interesting and uh, I wish I could talk to Rand to see where she got her understanding of the dynamics of government intervention in energy and my hypothesis is that having lived through World War II where there was uh physical rationing of petroleum uh and uh other carbon-based energies and having uh seen uh, blackouts, uh, brownouts and shortages that uh Uh, That is where she um, got her understanding of government intervention versus affordable, plentiful energy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot. She certainly knew a lot of economics. I mean, she knew people like Ludwig von Mises uh, personally. She's also just uh, brilliant. And there's certain. I mean, you can only say if someone is just a really original thinker. There's only so much you can say. I think my suspicion is that a significant amount of it has to do with the kind of mind that she has as a novelist. Uh, because in, if you look at her notes in preparing Atlas Shrugged, she talks about how I need to understand very concretely, an emphasis on concretely, what how a society declines. And because she has the necessity in a novel of having a a plot that's very tightly tied together and where one cause, you know, where causes lead to effects. I think that gave her or enhanced her very intricate causal understanding of how a society uh, works. Whereas if you look at the backgrounds of most people who think about these things, they're often spending just time in academia and it's easy to get a little detached from concrete reality. Whereas even if you're you're thinking about it for purposes of a novel, you have to study it it, what exactly does this do to a businessman? And thus when she, and how exactly do these politicians work? How is it that they, why do they do these things? And those those kinds of questions and then having a brilliant mind thinking about the answers plus the exposure to economic uh, theory I think leads to just this this very nuanced thing. But if I haven't said it before and I have, go read Atlas Shrugged, everyone.
2: Yes, Uh And it's selling so well in the Obama era because, uh, you know, a lot of it uh, is coming true. Um, um, And, yeah, Rand's methodology was uh, the objective real world. And uh, if you start with that uh, methodology, uh, you are going to end up uh, understanding reality much more than those that use false assumptions um uh, and you know hoteling is is an example of
1: that yeah and it's 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 a real challenge and it's part of why I wanted to bring you on the show to to question assumptions because there is a certain internal logic to the hoteling view and the the modern view of this is finite the way people think of finite this is finite therefore they they think of it as look there's a, ma- a certain amount of food on the table And we're just going to, you know, every time we eat the food, uh, it's disappearing and we're going to run out. And don't we wish we had, you know, just a pizza box full of pizza that every time we took a slice, it replenished? And that's how people think of, how they think of uh, renewable energy. In terms of, instead of, I think the views that you've you've, um, shared with us are that the Earth is just... It's it's almost no resources at the beginning. Right, it's just a bunch right. of raw materials. And the whole thing is we've got this incredible mass, which we've only touched a tiny portion of. How right. do we intelligently make use of that mass? So how do we put food on the table? Not how do we take food that's already given to us? But, but there's no limit to how much food we can put on the table if only we figure it out. But if we focus on let's not eat too fast, that's the wrong focus.
2: Right. Well, let's explore the idea of uh, fixity a bit. Uh, there was an estimate that came out uh, maybe about 10 years ago uh, estimating all the carbon-based energy that we the world had consumed versus how much we believe is still there, not only uh, proved reserves but probable resources and even speculative resources. And the answer came out to be that we have consumed from, you know, the uh, mid-1800s to the present uh, about 1.4% of what we think exists. Now, that sounds incredibly small, but when you uh, look at uh, energy growth, uh, that's actually only uh, uh, 200, 300 years of supply left. Uh, so, So you would think, you know, the fixity assumption, you know, really comes into play. However, if they redid that estimate today, given boom in uh, oil and gas production uh, from um, the shale supplies, uh, then that 1.4 percent would shrink to uh, well under one percent. I haven't done the math, but I'm guessing. So what's happening here is that uh, you know, in some theoretical sense, there is fixity and maybe it's the you know it, it's certainly a lot less than the mass of the earth for minerals uh, but that that pick supply is always growing because human ingenuity is uh, discovering uh, uh, ways to get that resource that just weren't there before um, for example with oil you think of crude oil and peak crude oil well uh crude oil is, is just one part of the petroleum family you know now we have tar sands from uh uh or you know heavy oils from Canada and elsewhere we have ore emulsion uh from uh, uh venezuela uh and we can make oil synthetically uh from coal so uh, once you start looking at the whole hydrocarbon resource family, what is supposedly fixed becomes very, very big and um, And then thinking of oil more broadly, you know and it's very expensive, but we can get oil uh, from uh, agricultural crops. So at some point in the future, who knows how many hundreds of years or even millennia? Uh, we go from so-called depletable resources to uh, renewable resources. Uh, So um, uh, we're always underestimating what the, quote, fixed, close, quote, supply is, but at some point it morphs into things that uh, people will recognize are really not fixed. So, um uh, this is this is a reason why Julian Simon uh said that uh, he expected energy to become ever more plentiful and cheaper indefinitely
1: so the oil example strikes me as a great example of the point you made earlier that resources are manufactured uh, because there's there's this view again of oil as something nature gives us and a doesn't give us very much it just sort of on the ground, lying around, and B, we didn't really know how to use it um, until starting in the, the mid 1800s, and then to really use it in, in the 20th century with things like modern uh, petroleum products and all the different modern petroleum fuels. So it doesn't it doesn't make sense to think of it. It's it's I think of a primitive view almost to think of any given material as just the earth gives us this much of it. It doesn't make sense to think of it that way because, because we can manufacture more and more, we have more and more control to manufacture more and more physical material. So what nature does is sometimes it'll give us an indication of, wow, this type of substance is valuable, this kind of chain of hydrogen and carbon, and we can take well, well, that and make the, more.
2: Uh, here's the extension. Uh, now we can go from the earth, fix minerals in the earth, to uh, minerals that we get from uh, asteroids uh, and, and other masses that are in space. And as a ma- matter of fact, wasn't there an announcement just a matter of weeks ago of companies that are going to uh, start exploiting resources uh, from uh, places beyond the Earth?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, and we had an article on, um, actually we published it on Master Resource about um, Nuclear space propulsion, and how that would be um that that caliber of propulsion would be an essential ingredient uh, to doing this economically, but of course there's the ocean i mean there's so much stuff as as much as amazing things have happened there's been so many um so called green restrictions that are just you know stunting the potential, so the potential is uh is just unlimited and one one more thought about resources that occurs to me is again the 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 view of the modern view of resources is not an economic view because for some for something to really be a resource it's it's not just that you can use it somehow it's that it's the one you want to use because it's the best and that's something that's continually changing so the issue with oil is not just can we produce this amount of stuff it's can that service, is this the best way to perform that service? And I would hope that going forward, we would find better and better ways of performing that service, something even more uh, compact to do it or a cheaper right. way to manufacture. But it's, it. But we don't just sort of get things and then consume them. We produce, we manufacture them, we manufacture them at certain costs, and then we consume the best things that we can manufacture. Right. And all that process yeah. requires is freedom
2: and what what you're getting at is substitution um uh you know the different alternatives we have to perform the same uh service so um you know what uh the, there's many different uh types of energy, and uh we can expect that the substitution possibilities increase
1: uh yeah yeah that is is a really important economic concept to have. Um, we are running to the end of the hour, but I want to make sure we get in uh, Julian's Can you s- just say two or three minutes about two figures? First, and they're opposing figures. First is Marion King Hubbard, and the second is Julian Simon.
2: Okay, well, uh, M. King Hubbard uh, was a shell uh, geologist who uh, became very well known uh, in the industry starting in the 1950s. Uh, with some predictions of peak oil and peak gas in the United States and the world. And uh, uh, for many decades, people thought his predictions were right. Well, guess what? Uh, With the recent changes in technology and oil and gas production in the United States and abroad, he has now been refuted.
1: Well, so, I mean, his his discreet—I mean, and as you said in the book, I believe, which was before the shale— Modern shell revolution he made a bunch of predictions about oil and gas in the future and and the the people who um you know the peak oil types only seized on the one prediction that was correct and this but of course anyone can make it doesn't refute the proper view of resources for any given resource in any given place to be produced to predict a declining quantity of production, there can be many reasons for that, including superior other resources, superior other places, but he did make many wrong predictions that we don't hear about, right?
2: Right. Well, you know what? It ends up that he makes, um, uh, uh, he is right for the wrong reasons, and he's wrong for the right reasons. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but but he's the latest example of... uh, of error uh, from the fixity in the peak oil, peak gas uh, school. Um, uh, he was sort of the industry version of Harold Hotelling, and now he's been refuted as well.
1: Yeah, although I mean, theoretically, he was had already been refuted at the time. But even his that discreet, famous prediction that everyone loves to cite has very fortunately been reversed, as in U.S. oil production is increasing, particularly in North Dakota, um, looks like a lot of other places coming soon, um, because resource, I like calling it the given view of resource, because resources are not just given to us, we manufacture them through human ingenuity. And a lot of brilliant people figured out how to manufacture from from formerly unusable shale. And that brings us to the most famous um, pro-free market resource theorist, Julian Simon.
2: Right. And Julian Simon began as a Malthusian. Um, uh, he had a very pessimistic view of the world, and mm. uh, he was uh, two things. One was he was an empiricist. He looked at the data. And number two, he had an open mind. Mm. And uh, early on in his career, uh, uh, he, he looked at the statistics, and he came to the startling conclusion Uh, that uh, turned Malthusianism on its head that uh, increasing human population was uh, positively correlated with increasing minerals, uh, uh, better environment, uh, more economic progress, and uh, really uh, all good things. So Simon comes to the conclusion that human beings are not the problem human beings are the solution. And one of his quotations, simple quotation, is that human beings create more than they destroy. Um, And I remember I had a discussion with someone who was uh, very concerned that uh, the price of uh, minerals was going to go up because we had all this increased supply from growing population in China. And I remember making the point as well, those things, Those same people that are going to be consuming more resources, uh, they're not only consumers, but they're producers. And their human minds are going to increase uh, resources, uh, minerals, etc., probably faster than uh, they will consume them. And that seems to be the case.
1: Yeah, I would say the absolute... Least that's the case. I mean, there's a lot that the rise of China has done for us economically, and that actually certain problems that it's it's concealed economically. I like to think of it as being on an island. If I'm on an island and I want to live, do I just want myself there, or do I want five smart people? And then if I want five smart people, would I rather have fifty smart people? Yeah, absolutely. Now maybe you wouldn't stick them all on at the exact same time, or if you did, it would take a little adjustment, but. Because the mind is the root of resources, um, the more minds, uh, the better. And with that, we need to wrap up. Rob, can you hang on the line for about uh, another minute? I have a question for you after we end the show. Um, But let's uh, wrap it up for now. We're at about 59 minutes. I don't want to go... Over the hour. I hope everyone is excited about the new weekly format. I hope you're excited uh, about videos. I want to thank everyone who gave to the fundraiser to make Power Hour weekly possible. I think you're going to learn a lot. I'm going to learn a lot. It's going to help everything we do at Center for Industrial Progress. It's going to introduce you to four times as many people We'll be able to cover uh, a lot more subjects. And again, because we're going to start doing video, you'll be able to see this on YouTube. We'll post excerpts on YouTube. So those who don't want to listen to an hour m- might can find five minutes that they really like uh, and share. So I'm very excited and optimistic about the future. Um, if you want to continue to support the show or the Center for Industrial Progress, you can go to www.industrialprogress.net slash donate. And if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. So until next week, next week, not next month. So make sure to subscribe on iTunes. um, Go to industrialprogress.net for more details. Go to masterresource.org to read more from Rob Bradley. And until next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.